great to be with you. We're all finally um, doing in-person things again and figuring out how that is. I guess I guess I'm, I'm very socially distanced, so I guess I can take my <laughs> mask off. Um, so, you know, yeah, so thank you, um, Chris, for that introduction, and it's good to be with you today. I'm going to share a few remarks, and then I'm really looking forward to answering some questions and being in dialogue. Um, so as I said, you know, I oversee the Environment Department and the Parks Department and the Office of Food Justice and Historic Preservation. So I do have, you know, my, my cabinet was once known as the Cabinet of Misfit Toys. We've got a lot going on. I, you know, I have everything from archaeology to animal control um, and um, literally, but I have a good time. Um, if you are the kind of person that wants a dynamic work environment, I can guarantee that um, it is never a dull day and it is never the same day in my, in my work. Um, so I think, you know, I, I started off in this role a little less than a year ago. I'm going to hit a year on April 26th. Um, but I think um, the frame that I bring to the work probably is pretty much the same frame I had before, although there's a, a difference in sort of my ability to move things forward. So when people ask me, like, what, how do you um, name your work? What do you consider your work to be? I say that I do ecological justice. And that's because eco, um, from the Greek oikos, means home. And ecology as a discipline really looks at um, not just looking at a specific animal or plant on its own, but ecology looks at the relationship between things and says you can't really understand a frog unless you understand the pond that it lives next to and the tree that grows next to that pond and how the leaves from those trees go to the bottom of the pond and, cre and um, create the silt that that frog is moving in. And, from my perspective, if I look at the world that we live in and I, I boil down the problems um, that I think we have, and ecology means study of home, we have some really dysfunctional relationships in this planet, which really is our only home. And so the question for me really is, how do we reorder those relationships? How do we um, connect and share resources in a good way? From my perspective, climate change does give us a deadline to get that together. Um, climate change is a harbinger of all of the bad systems that we've created over time. Um, and Mama Earth is saying, like, I'm giving you a deadline. Uh, when people are like, we're going to save the planet, I just want to be really clear. The planet is going to survive. <laughs> but she has a really dysfunctional child that she may have to put out because they don't know how to act and they eat people's food in the refrigerator even when other people put labels on them. They just come in, they leave all sorts of interesting things in the bathroom, they dump clothes all over the place. Um, we are a society in which we have built our, we have built our ethos off of stealing from our children. And that is just, no other species is confused about the fact that their first and primary responsibility is to the next generation. Um, we are the only, while we imagine ourselves being so enlightened, we are the only species that has become confused about that as our central purpose. Um, so I say, you know, ecology, study of home, economy is supposed to be management of home. Um, and I am dismayed by how often people tell me we cannot make the right ecological decisions because it's not economically wise. If we don't have another home to go to, then the totality of our economy 
should be built on maintaining our ability to survive in the only home that we do have. And once again, it's a disordered society that has an economy that is destructive to its ecology, um, and there's a necessity to shift that. Um, so I, I try to make that practical in the way that we do um, work at the city. Um, they send me a list of all the things you guys would love to talk about. I was like, everything we do. Um, so I'll just lean in on, on three things, and then you can, uh, you can sort of uh, delve more deeply in. Um, many of you have probably heard about Birdo um, 2.0, our building emissions reduction and uh, disclosure ordinance. Um, pretty proud of that's one of the first things I got told. Um, Chris Cook, who was my predecessor, he was like, you got to get this across the finish line. If you don't finish anything else, when I took this job, I didn't know if I would like government. I told them, I said, I'm staying for seven months, and then we'll see how I feel after that. Um, I've been an activist most of my life. Um, and I wasn't sure if I was going to even be a good, good government official or if I would even like the work. Um, but um, one of the things I think is really excited about Birdo, and I, I want to give credit to my team who spent 18 months like talking with people and working with people, this question of we know that um, we require a total transformation of like our systems and our structures and buildings as a city um, are one of our major sources of emissions. And so we got all excited. I sat on the, as a, as a community member, sat on this, you know, we're going to be carbon free by 2050. And everybody's excited. And it was like, but we've had a tendency to make those big pronouncements and then not do the work to figure out how are we going to get from here to there. So Birdo is basically our way of saying, so glad we're all committed to this goal. Let's figure out how we're going to do that in a concrete way. And we started with buildings over 20,000 square feet because on the whole, um, those are the buildings where we feel like economies of scale are possible. Um, there are a lot of our larger buildings have uh, prospered in this economy over the last 20 years as Boston. I remember, I grew up in Boston when we didn't have a grocery store. When we woke up on Saturday mornings and went out to the suburbs, I grew up in a food desert. Um, and now I live from down the street from the South Bay, which is literally the most popular grocery store in the entire state of Massachusetts. They like added four more aisles because they make that much money per aisle that it was like worth a whole construction project for that. Um, so the city has changed a lot. And many of our build bigger buildings are the ones that have done well in this economy. And so the reality is if we want to see a market transformation on buildings and how they function and the retrofit work that's needed, we need to ask those folks who have done the best in this economy to get out there and create the market conditions that are going to bring the prices down for everybody else. We need innovation from our hospitals. We need innovation from our universities and from many of our major real estate owners. Um, in addition to the fact that they are the biggest emitters, if they do it right and if we can help them to do it right, they're going to make it much more affordable and plausible for our, many of our nonprofits, our cultural organizations, and our smaller homeowners to be able to afford to do the same kind of work themselves. Um, so we have an, an equitable admissions fund that's part of that, which um, means that some of the money that is generated as people are moving through the process, we can then um, use to help affordable housing or um, some of our cultural institutions have the resources they need to do the same kind of retrofitting um, that's going to be required for us all 
um, to be prepared for the crisis we are already facing and the ways in which it's going to, to get worse. There's also this question of climate-ready Boston. I don't know how many of you all have been following the resilience conversation. This is, this area is an interesting ground zero for how that conversation, I can't say that, on a, we can talk about that at some other point. Um, and, but I think uh, this question of how are we preparing, Boston is the fourth most vulnerable city in the United States. We have 47 miles of coastline. Um, I live pretty close um, to uh, Carson Beach, one of, you know, I love it. It's where I went running the morning of my wedding and I have pictures from it and it's a beautiful place. I lament the fact that there will come a day where children may become afraid of the sea because it is where the disasters come from. What we're trying to do instead is say, can we build um, particularly climate resilient parks so that um, when times are good, people can play and um, have a cultural performance at an amphitheater. It's an amphitheater and it's a bioswale. It's, you know, it's a field and there's a berm. How do we make sure that people um, can have access to the water in good ways, but we're also using waterfront parks, not just as a quality of life enhancement, but also a protection against climate change. Um, we're trying to think creatively like that. Um, and then there is the question about who pays for it. What do we do when the land is privately owned? Um, these are tough questions that we're trying to think through. And finally, um, probably my project that I'm most excited about, um, when I came in, uh, uh, Mayor Jamie immediately gave um, me some resources to, to look at green jobs, and I'm really excited that a month from now, we will launch um, Power Core Boston, um, built on the model from Power Core Philly, um, which I've seen a lot of great work and there's a lot of great work going on in the green job space. What I saw in Philly has blown away anything else I've seen anywhere else. And that's because they have brought a deep intentionality, one about who they serve. So 50% of the folks in, pa in Power Core Philadelphia are returning citizens, folks who found themselves in the criminal justice system, um, but are able to get jobs in solar, um, get jobs, the, 70% of the Philadelphia Water Department's green stormwater infrastructure unit are graduates of Power Core, including the person at the top who is a returning citizen who said when he got out of prison, he said, I never wanna go back and I'm looking for the kind of job that I can raise a family on. And now he supervises and oversees a lot of other young adults like himself um, and they're at the front lines of addressing flooding in Philly um, Similar to Boston, they had a consent degree. You're probably not surprised which neighborhoods had some of the biggest challenges. Um, and people are able to see young folks from their neighborhood, who quite frankly are the folks that we often build prison beds for based on their fourth grade um, test scores. Those young people are out um, addressing green stormwater infrastructure issues. So I think I'm gonna pause there and, and, and create some space for questions, but I, I do want to note, you know, um, as we talk about this issue of home, I think many of you went into this profession because you know that the built environment can make or break the level of connection between people. It can make and break or break what people feel like they have access to and whether or not they feel like they belong. And so I think all of these are really key issues um, as we imagine not just how we protect ourselves from climate change, but who we choose to be 
as human beings. In my opinion, if we can't do better than we have been doing, I'm not sure the human race deserves to continue existing on the planet. But if we look at the crisis that we've been facing as an opportunity to do better and be better, um, I think there are major opportunities for us to evolve into something different. And um, I think you, I, I do not have to convince this crowd that the way we build our cities, the way we construct our buildings, the way we permit our open space sends clear signals about who belongs and um, who this is for. And so really leaning into those questions from an equity perspective um, feels crucial at this time, maybe more than ever. So I'll stop there and then we'll lean in to hear what, what do you all wanna talk about? What are you thinking? What questions are, are you working with? We have a great opportunity, so I have a few questions to ask, but uh, we also have an opportunity for all of us to engage in this dialogue. So uh, after maybe five or 10 minutes from now, um, please, if you have questions, I'll, I'll try to facilitate uh, um, calling you out and, and we have a microphone in the middle so folks online can hear, can hear that. Um, I, I just wanna note, you know, it's such a beautiful bookend to the day. We started the day talking about block power and the vision of providing clean, efficient, electric, affordable homes, decarbonized homes yeah. for those who need it most. You're providing that vision about trying to, to make, make a more equitable approach so that something I'd let you're such a powerful image that we deserve it, you know, to, so that we deserve mm. Maybe, can we talk for a second about, you know, I, I think we've, we, the USGBC community, have been in this effort to pursue kind of green building for over 25 years. Mm -hmm. And at this, but now the, the resonance of providing an equitable approach to delivering these things, mm -hmm. where green isn't an amenity, green is a is a right, green is how do you how does that affect how does that change mm -hmm. how how you go about your work and and and, and I, I, you've said a few little vignettes, but I mm -hmm. love to have maybe for our benefit to think because we are in the midst of a conversation about evolving our tools, mm -hmm. evolving our programs, and trying truly to make this more equitable so that it's not just a high rise here and a high rise there, but a something that gets into neighborhoods. How does it change your yeah. practice? Well, I mean, I think part of why we need things like Birdo, why we need things like the Net Zero Zoning Code or the Stretch Code and all these things is because um, sometimes I think we've been acting like green is something that people should do out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, I think we need to remind ourselves we're fighting for our survival and we're past the point where it's a nicety, like it's a necessity now. Uh, so, you know, what we hear from the business community all the time is like, we need a level playing field. We need to, you know, we need some clarity about like how we're gonna be evaluated. We don't want it so that we have to do one thing and the other guy over there cuts corners. They get rewarded for not doing that, mm -hmm. right? So I think that one of the reasons that we really need to ensconce this in policy is that it does create a level playing field, and it does clarify for people exactly what we expect of them. Um, one of the things I, I like about Birdo is that we are, every five years, you're gonna be evaluated against a different standard until we get to net zero. But you know what that standard is now. So you can look at a building right now and make decisions about what you could be investing in this building now that's gonna make it ready for 2040. 
Um, and so I think we, we really are past the point where, I mean, everybody's saying we need to do it. If we need to do it, we need to help people get there with some really concrete um, guidelines. Uh, and again, what, what we strongly believe is if, we, if it's driven at the front end by the folks who, quite frankly, usually can mostly afford it, I know they feel like it's an imposition, but I know that they won't miss a meal. Like I, I also have the Office of Food Justice. There are people in our city who are missing a meal to make rent payments. Mm -hmm. So we need to ask the people who are not missing a meal um, to lead so that the benefits that are derived from that leadership can be extended to people for whom there isn't 18 extra dollars mm -hmm. to make it work. Um, too often, even in the way we do energy efficiency, it's volunteer, voluntary in such a way. So I, I, as an example, every single person who pays electricity in the state of Massachusetts pays into our energy efficiency fund. But overwhelmingly, those benefits are going to upper income homeowners. We are literally transferring wealth from poor people to rich people in the way we're doing our energy policy. That is unjust. And so policy really matters, and we have been trying. And again, I'm not gonna tell you we get it all right all the time. We're in the middle of our wetlands ordinance, and we were like, wait, what is somebody doing elsewhere? And we found that like literally we couldn't find anywhere else in the country yet. If you know one, please let us know, where people are looking at their wetlands policy from an environmental justice lens. How are we making sure that the burden doesn't end up on the people who have the least ability to do it, how are we making sure that if there's gains made from this, we're actually using it to repair harm that's been done in communities where people didn't invest in the past? Um, and so we are thinking really intentionally about how we are demanding the most of those who have the most to give, and then thinking about how we can take those benefits and help those who can't do it to sort of join in this. Because if, at the end of the day, we know Everybody has to get there, and we've got to get there sooner than I think we, we have often felt. Uh, we've, I think we've operated like we have time. I think we are more and more aware that we do not have extra time to figure this out. We need to get aggressive. That is a powerful image. I, mean, I think many of us in this room, I know we've been in this game for a long time, mm -hmm. that idea that we are, let's call it incentivizing, well-off people to do the right thing. And, and that, that paradigm you painted is mm -hmm. very visceral. It's very uncomfortable and not using those resources or, or not targeting those resources to folks who, who you said are, who may literally need them in a visceral way. Mm -hmm. I think that is a, a moment of introspection mm -hmm. that, you know, that, we, that I think we're collectively having. It's really right. powerful. I mean, one, one thing that you, you, you've been passionate about is jobs and about the fact that doing this stuff yeah. results in good jobs and a growth of jobs. Can yep. you speak more about like what, how does that fit in? I mean, actually, I just, as, as like, can we have a quick show of hands if you currently possess a, what you would call a green job? All right, I kind of yeah. suspected as much. Yeah. All right, so we had an audience of green job holders. Yeah. So tell us what, what that means to you. Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple of things. So first of all, we need to make sure that all green jobs are good jobs, right? And, and I, I need to name this. I've worked in the solar space and I believe in solar, right? But sometimes we've given a pass on looking hard about whether or not 
those frontline tech jobs are good jobs. Um, we, you know, the folks who work at the top are doing well. We have allowed a lot of the same inequities that we would critique other, sometimes the oil industry is doing a better job at creating jobs that pay people well than the renewable energy sector. And so we need to look, we don't need to just say they're good because in theory they are. We need to pay attention to this question of who's making the money and is it being equitably distributed. So I wanna start there because I believe in it. I've leaned into it. Um, when we put solar panels on our, con our church, we paid attention to what are the wages because if they're not actually good jobs, then work. If people can make you know, $85,000 a year pumping oil, but they can only make $45,000 a year doing solar, they're not going to leave those oil jobs. So if we want people to transition, we may not be able to hit 85, but you can't go half on. You have to do, we have to do better and make sure that everyone along the chain is actually doing well. So then I think the other piece is, um, I've heard what's, what we're doing with PowerCore is we've heard time and time again that there are sectors where they literally cannot fill the jobs. And so then we've asked the question, where are there places where if a young adult gave us an intense year, and pretty intense year, like day in and day out on a crew working, we could get them to the point where they could enter this sector without a college degree and do well. Our goal is to get to the point where people want our folks over folks coming out of college because they know when they show up, they will have the skill set to do well. And so um, we are looking at things like uh, tree maintenance, right? From all the way up to arborists. I know, because I can't feel my arborist positions in the city of Boston. Now, I don't have enough of them, and I'm still fighting for more in the budget, because um, we only have like three positions, um, and Cambridge has like six, and they're a third of our size, so we need more, we need more, more positions. But we also struggle to attract people. I'm looking for places where folks are struggling for workers, and I'm saying, where are young people who, in many instances, didn't even know this job existed? And if they give me their all and go hard for a year, I can get them in some place where they can raise their family off those salaries. And again, if we can get, I, I've talked to people, we talked with some folks in the um, smart buildings work, and they said, if you can just get me someone who will show up every day, that's all I need. I'm so desperate for folks. I will pay for the training to teach them how to do the tech work in the building, right? Um, because it's a win-win. It's a I grew up in a community um, where quite far too many people were unemployed. And when people don't have jobs, it creates a whole lot of other challenges. Um, it makes it hard for people to raise their kids. It makes it um, more attractive to end up in illicit industries. Um, so I think uh, I know the power of a good job. I mean, my cousins both got out of jail when um, the big dig was happening, and they were so desperate for workers, they were like, you got out of jail yesterday? We can give you a job today, right? That's how they didn't end up back in jail. Mm -hmm. 
because they were able to get into the union and they were able to move forward with those jobs. So uh, I, we're just searching. Where are there jobs that are desperate for people and how can we find young people, some of whom may have given up hope that that kind of job is available to them and say, if you put your all in and you show up every day, we're gonna connect you. Um, from my perspective, I also oversee the Parks Department, so I'm also like looking at jobs that we've struggled to fill and mm -hmm. saying like, young people, we'll train you. You come in and stay, because I, in Boston, you have to have residency. Sometimes we struggle to find folks who are Boston um, uh, residents who wanna do these jobs, but every young person in our, in our green jobs program will be um, you know, a Boston resident. So I think the couple things I would say is really asking the question, you know, I think definitely looking at pipelines, how do you get more young people to know about the profession so they may want to go to college. The other question is, do you have jobs that you've required a college degree and there's not a necessity for that? And there's a lot of times where people are requiring a college degree and you're like, what did a person learn in college that you think they need to have in this job? And if it doesn't need to be a barrier, then get rid of it. It can be a plus, but it doesn't need to be a barrier. And there's a lot of jobs in this sector um, where you could learn on the job. We could be training people. We could be having stronger connections with um, community colleges. In uh, many other parts of the world, uh, particularly Europe, I've looked at specifically, there's a lot more focuses on apprenticeships and other things that allow people to train right into a job. And we have tended not to do that in the United States. I think it's a real opportunity. It's an opportunity around equity. And quite frankly, with the great resignation, people need to get with it. Like workers are not <laughs> trying to be abused these days. So let's think about how um, we can use this as an opportunity um, to create in-house training programs. Can two or three companies come together and say, let's be honest, we have pretty much very similar entry-level um, job requirements. Can we create an academy? Can we create it with a local community college? Can we create it with a local high school that um, allows young people a direct track into this job? And they may, after that, decide to go back and get you know, their undergrad or their master's. There may be other things that they need down the line, but getting people in the door and exposing them and not creating barriers that prevent them from connecting. Not everybody is able to take four years and go to college. Some people need to make money much more quickly because of family and life circumstances. Um, so I think that a lot of rethinking is needed on the employer side about what could we do differently that increases access to these positions and you know, decreases the sort of open positions that make it harder and harder um, for us to get the work done. I know what it is to have open, like 17 steps to hire someone at the city. So we are like very familiar with open positions and how it taxes people. Um, but I think, there's, I think there's some real exciting opportunities in these growth industries to do much stronger equity work than we have in the past. Um, and I'm hoping, I'm experiencing now, a lot of motivated employers um, and we are happy to work with them. I'm gonna be so excited to see young people from my neighborhood talking about how we need to remove these invasive plants. 
I met a young person in Philly who talked to me about being with the Green Stormwater Infrastructure Group. He then realized why there was flooding at his neighborhood park. So he just decided like every month or every couple of weeks during um, the fall when a lot of the leaves fall, he just clean out the, the um, drains. I mean, I'm sure that's been happening in that neighborhood for years. But now you have a civically engaged young person who knows what to do about it, um, can engage their neighbors on it. Those benefits are beyond the workforce and beyond the marketplace to real tangible, tangible benefits for communities. And I think um, I'm excited to be able to do that kind of work. I love that. It's, it's, it's a, it's the empowerment that yeah. you described is, is fantastic. Well, I've got one last question for you okay. on resilience. But if folks have, have questions, please, if you wouldn't mind, if you grab the microphone in a second, and we'll do one last question for me, and then we'll, we'll see if you guys uh, to engage with you guys. Uh, so another signature thing mm -hmm. for in your program is, mm -hmm. is the Climate Ready Boston work. And it has a number of things that are notable, uh, including the, the relationship between public and private sector, mm -hmm. the shoreline work. Mm -hmm. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is your neighborhood work. Mm -hmm. Something that distinguishes it is your work kind of coming up with both an overarching master plan in climate ready, but also a kind of bespoke focus on different neighborhoods yeah, and their yeah. needs. Can you talk about how, why you chose, many other jurisdictions have a citywide plan. Mm -hmm. Very few have neighborhood targeted plans the way that, at least I believe, the way that you've done. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why you elected to work at the neighborhood scale and what that gives you in terms of what makes that different? Yeah. Um, well, Boston's definitely a city of neighborhoods. <laughs> like when people say to me, I'm from Boston, I'm like, what neighborhood? They're like, uh, if you don't know, you ain't from here, right? <laughs> um, in Dorchester, you don't need to just know that you're from Dorchester, you need to know what parish you're in. And you need to know what parish you are in before the Catholic Church reorganization. <laughs> so technically I live in Mother Teresa, but in my neighborhood, it's still St. Williams. Um, so we're a city of neighborhoods and the realities and the conditions are different in different places. So I think climate ready for us is uh, two sides. One, people bring local expertise that we need to tap into. As we're really thinking about um, how we're gonna address these, the solution that may work well in one place may not necessarily work well in another place, depending on how people use their coast and how they're relating to it. And um, so all of those things, right, people bring that expertise. Um, I love that like some of our climate ready people now go out when a storm is coming and take pictures of us, things to tell us where there's flooding. Um, so it's both to hear their expertise and um, facing climate change is also a social, emotional, like spiritual thing that we, have, we also have to help people be ready for. Um, and so we also wanna make sure that our neighborhoods have an understanding of what is coming what is happening currently and what is coming. Um, we are not yet at the place, but I'm feeling like we need to start. It is plausible. And I think this is something we can say on a global level, but we have, I haven't seen anyone get ready to say it on a local level and I'm not gonna say where. I'm just saying um, it is plausible not everything can be saved. It is plausible that there are decisions we're going to have to make um, that are gonna be hard for people. And to get to those tough conversations and those tough decisions, people have to be included from the very beginning. Um, so like for instance, we are doing our best to make nature-based choices in every, in every community as best we can. But there's some communities where people have literally built all the way up 
to the water's edge. I can't put a park if there's no more land to put it on. And so I think it is my hope that it, it helps people to be more engaged, to be ready to have those tough conversations, but also to have a understanding of what options we actually do have and what we don't. And we are continuing to make development decisions that are opening or closing doors about what we can do in the future. And so I think having residents have clarity about the impacts of those decisions is really important. Um, I think there's another layer that we really haven't quite got. So Climate Ready, most of our early work was very coastally driven. We are now have been pivoting really for the past year and a half, almost two years, to really focus on heat. Um, heat is, there is so much alignment between heat and racial and economic injustice. Um, and so it has helped, it has opened and required us to have some tough conversations about planning decisions we made in the city in the past and to make sure we don't keep replicating those bad decisions, right? Um, bringing people in uh, and sharing the data with them and creating space for them to tell their own stories about their lived reality. I grew up on the third floor in a house that did not have air conditioning and still doesn't. But it's funny how after my sister and I left, my parents did upgrade. I mean, maybe it's because they were finished paying our college bills, but like they have AC in their room. I did not have AC growing up. And I didn't even have like, I remember there was something was wrong with the insect because it was like those old, old windows our parents, you know, and you can't find them at Home Depot. And so my fan would fall out the window and tumble down and I'd have to like go all the way down, pick it up and like put it back in the window. So like, it's real. You know, hearing the story of a grandmother for China, from Chinatown who said her granddaughter almost passed out from heat stroke. She said, that's not supposed to happen. She said, I'm the one. Those lived realities have to inform our decision making, have to inform our policy making, and we need to make sure that that grandmother has enough understanding of what we're dealing with that she can say to us, I think there's an opportunity for some tree canopy here. Or maybe we can do this on each other's roofs. Maybe I can help you talk to my neighbors, right? Um, because there are some places like Chinatown, which is the hottest part of the entire city of Boston, and where the built environment is, like there's not a ton of extra space. Mm. So there, it's gonna require a high level of creativity. People may have to sacrifice parking spaces to put in trees, right? Like those are the tough decisions that are gonna be made and making sure that people are engaged early in makes it easier, not easy, but easier to have those tough conversations about the trade-offs we're gonna have to make to take care of each other. Love it, I mean, I, I, I encourage folks, if you have questions to come up, I mean, and well, well, someone, if anyone's coming up, I, I, I'm happy to keep, keep peppering questions. But I wanna make sure that you, I mean, I, I know that you probably hear this all the time, but. If you're from if you're from Boston, don't take this incredible story for granted because it's not like this everywhere else. If you're not from <laughs> Boston, um, the, the model that you guys provide, both of, of mitigating the drivers of climate change and adapting to these things, is 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 truly inspiring for those of us who who don't have the privilege of having you represent. So, uh, uh, questions or thoughts from other folks that I, I, 
I want to make sure folks have a chance if you want to. Otherwise, I, I, I got plenty to ask you about. So, <laughs> so let's, let's, one thing that you, you, you've talked about is getting folks to have, you, you, have an, you guys have done amazing things in the city of Boston with new construction. Mm -hmm. But obviously, you have an incredible building stock mm -hmm. that you're trying to move. Yeah. And, and part of that is jobs. Part of that is incentives. Part of it's, but there's unlock, but moving beyond compliance to kind of moving this stock. How do you think about that challenge? Like, yeah. where? How do you get started when you're thinking about something as big as the building stock of a whole city, and you know it needs to move yeah, to be a, yeah. those guidelines? So some of what we've tried to do is be, even during the Berto process, we open conversations with a number of different groups. So we are in pretty consistent conversations with like a better city. We work with the Green Ribbon Commission. I've gone to talk to their cultural institutions group. The hospitals have been like in constant. All of the shifts are not going to come from the city. Um, and we're clear about that. We are going to help. Don't, like, I'm not saying we're not going to help folks. But what we are <laughs> saying, and part of what got added even to, the, to um, the ordinance, is the ability to convene people. Because I'm never going to know a hospital as well as another person that runs in a, a hospital. So what we actually think is needed um, and we're thankful that some sectors are already sort of like doing this. I think people need to start convening and sharing their best practices, saying, I was planning to do this and I hit this roadblock. Suggestions, anybody, right? We are doing things like sitting down with like the fire department and having them and helping them to be in conversation with some of the hospitals as we look at like, what are we gonna need in terms of battery storage and how can we do that in a safe way? So. Um, we don't expect that the, we are going to have all the answers. We are, the policy is in place to motivate the solution finding, but a lot of that's going to require um, folks to learn from each other. Um, you don't transform a sector with each group working by itself. Um, what's really going to be a game changer is people sharing their best practices back and forth with each other. Um, and we are trying to, we're actually in the midst of and having conversations with people about designing something that we're calling a hub. Mm -hmm. Can you, if you found something that really works, can we even have a system for you to document it and upload it so that somebody else can like access that information? How are we making sure that the information flow is happening as successfully as possible? The city cannot choose winners and losers on technology. However, we would love to see groups go in together and mm -hmm. ask, I can get this technology, can we do better if five of us go for the technology at the same time? All of those kinds of um, innovations and, and real savings opportunities, we're not expecting to just do by ourselves. Mm -hmm. But we are, we are asking internally, what are the ways we can facilitate these conversations? Are there bars we can lower if, um, that help people to, to converse across sectors? Um, can we at least let people self-organize? If you found mm. something that's worked great in your building, without us sort of advocating for it, can we make a space that allows you to share that easily with someone else, right? So we are trying to think through those things, but there are a lot of civic groups that exist already, and we're hoping, and many of them um, have been really open to saying, yes, we'll bring people together. If you need us sometimes, we're more than willing to come. But I, I do think my expectation is 
lots of the innovation will happen when we're not even in the room. Um, and we hope that this policy is going to spur that um, and lead people to, to find those those kind of opportunities. Love it, and that really really resonates with uh, in other contexts where those those um, communities of practice sell similar their peers, learning right. from each other. It makes sense. I, I I have one last question for you. Okay. Maybe. Um, I, I did, and I, I, we could keep going. I think, but yes, I, I see some folks oh, moving to. Oh, please, yeah, go, go for it. Um, go for it. Can I take my mask off? Good to see you. Last time we saw you was with our Built Environment Plus Women in Green event. I know. And we had your superpower. <laughs> Do you remember what your superpower is? I, I oh wait, did I say making taking complex things and making yeah, them easy for people to understand? Superpower. All right. That was it. Um, so Meredith Elbaum, uh, so glad to have you here kind of about carrots and sticks, right, and, and power of moving, and I wanted to let you know, we recently released a report on the state of net zero buildings in Massachusetts, and what we're finding is that the number one driver of net zero, or the number one square footage of projects in Massachusetts that are net zero is affordable housing. Well, I want to give a shout out specifically to Sheila Dillon, who's one of, who's my count, uh, a colleague at the city. You know, what's been amazing to me is like, so we do work with, with um, uh, the mayor's office of housing, but like they get it, they they get it on their own, um, and so I I think it is in many ways because it's human centered building. On the whole, people who build affordable housing are keeping at the front of their mind who they're building for. Um, I hope that 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 should be how we do all design. Yeah, and I, I mean it's. I think the lesson that we're seeing there is it's not just because people want to do good, but it's making sense. And the QAP, which gives uh, tax credits, right, for, and that's the point system that yeah. gives us tax credits, um, you get points for having a lead building. Right. More points if it's a renovation of a lead building, right? You get five points if it's passive house, right? You get other points if it's enterprise green. Right. So if it's, that's getting um, more and more uh, buildings to go this way because yeah. people are getting money for right. it and it makes sense from a financial sense. They wouldn't be doing this. I mean, it's over 4 million square feet of affordable housing um, that's going, that's either net zero or going to be net zero. And I think a lot of it, you know, and then you have towns, you know, Boston has incentives in mm -hmm. Somerville, you get extra added square footage, um, you know, density bonuses yeah. if you're going. And so there's something about these, you know, keep on incentivizing because the developers are learning and because then the developers are learning, oh, we can do this because we're incentivized, they're starting to do it on market rate stuff mm -hmm. too. Um, so anyways, I just want to. Yeah, I mean, I, I love when affordable housing is leading the way to get the market. Um, we're going to put, we thankfully, Murdo is going to help push that market, uh, hopefully to innovate beyond where it has been. But yeah, it's, it's been really exciting. And, and it's, it, it's often you hear this false choice, like, oh, we can't go green because it will make it unaffordable. But um, I do think incentives are important. And I do think we are, in some but not all cases, reaching the point where some of these technologies are not more expensive to do. Um, and so we're just hoping that we can help accelerate that if we're even more possibilities. I love it. I want to get, I, I, do you have one more? Yeah, please. Uh, it's time for one more. Eli from built another Built Environment Plus uh, head here. But um, at the December event, one of the things that you said that stuck out to me was that this is an all hands on deck total transformation moment. And I feel like um, with the, 
election of a mayor that's running, that ran on a, on a Green New Deal platform. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, like, to get a taste from you of what the future, uh, there's so much shifting in Boston right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to hear what, what you thought that, what, like, what, what does that translate into mm -hmm. when it comes to green buildings and all of that? But um, wh what does it mean to be living in a city that is committed, um, at least in part, to something at the scale of a Green New Deal. Yeah, so I think one of the things, and um, I, I actually used to uh, help run the statewide Green New Deal coalition and sit on the national uh, coalition. And so one, I think that one of the things I think is really key is that the, the central point for me behind the Green New Deal is that we can address the ecological crisis and the economic crisis at the same time. And, and so I think that what it means in practical terms of the city is that we are, are trying to look at everything intersectionally, right? We're trying to look at, um, you know, one of the central pieces around environmental justice is the idea of who gets the benefits and who gets the burdens, right? And um, I am crystal clear, if we cited all of our polluting uh, uh, facilities in Wellesley and, um, Wayland and you know some of our most affluent communities, you we would see a renewable revolution. We would get rid of coal-fired power plants tomorrow if they were equitably cited, right? Um, and so we're really looking at um, how are we not just doing the right thing from an ecological standpoint, but how are we doing it in a way that addresses these economic justice issues and ask real questions about who's benefiting, who's at the front of the line, how are we using our levers to ask the most of those who can afford it and, and ask the least and bring the biggest benefit to those who've not got it. And so I think it's playing out in all sorts of ways. I think I have no time left. So um, I could, but I, you know, I think I've named some of the policies. There's even more um, in, the, in the works from like electric school buses. I mean, we're looking at everything from that lens, and I think it's an exciting time um, to lean into change.